Shalom, good morning. It's good to be in Jersey. I did uh, graduate high school in Middlesex, from Middle, in Middlesex County. So, and, and I was a well-known drug dealer there. Perhaps you know my reputation. Um, so, uh, Tim did a good job of uh, sharing my san uh, sort of sanitized testimony. And, uh, but basically, I have a, a similar testimony to a lot of Jewish guys my age. I was raised in a traditional Jewish home, then uh, got into drugs, sold drugs, became a hippie, went out to California, got saved, came back, and went into the ministry. <laughs> That's about it. Not very exciting. <clears throat> uh, so let me bring you uh, to the point where I had already been a believer for quite a long time, three or four months. I was already enrolled at Northeastern Bible College, which ne who never should have accepted me. And, uh, and by the way, I was told to get a haircut on my first day at Bible College, and, uh, which I did. And so this is what happened when I came home and shared the good news with my parents. So my mom and, uh, and dad were living in uh, Madison Township, Old Bridge, New Jersey. You know where that is? And uh, so I came back uh, after everything I experienced and become a believer and so on. And, and of course, you know, I, I left the drug dealing hippie, so they weren't too happy about that. And now I came back a flaming Jesus freak. But they didn't know that yet because I didn't tell them that because I didn't want to tell them that over the phone. They also didn't know that I was enrolled in Bible college to become a missionary to the Jews, which is probably not the vocation they were expecting at my bar mitzvah. And so I knock on the door in this nice little suburban place and, and uh, my mom opens the door and she says, oh, you didn't tell us you were coming home. We're so happy and she's, she's hugging me and kissing me and, and uh, of course I knew what was about to happen. And so I said, wonderful, great to be home. Oh, let me get your father and uh, you're skinny. Let's sit down, let's eat something. So sat down, began eating. And uh, of course my mom said, so uh, how long, are you, is this a visit? How long are you gonna be here? I said, good news, mom, I'm staying. <laughs> She said, oh, wonderful, wonderful. Now, I had already been a college dropout, Jewish mother's worst nightmare. And so I, so I said, she said, so what are you going to do? I said, I'm going back to college. Knew that would make her happy. And she said, where are you going to go to college? I said, oh, I'm, I'm going to go to Northeastern <coughs> College. <laughs> and she said, one more time. I said, Northeastern <coughs> Bible College. And literally, she looked at me and she says, what the heck is a Bible college? I said, well, Mom, I'm going to major in Bible. The next word out of her mouth really expresses my, my person at that time. She looked at me and she said, you? <laughs> so you're going to be a rabbi? I said, oh, maybe, maybe. Not in the traditional sense, perhaps, but... Uh, and, and this is... You know, this was kind of going back and forth, and, and 
I, I, you know, I've been a believer three or four months. I had no training. I never even went to a church. I went to a church once. I mean, I had no idea. I could barely be discipled. The people who were discipling me in California gave up and sent me to Bible college. And so, <laughs> so I, I just used my Jesus freak training, and I just looked at my mother and father, and I said, well, mom, dad, you're both going to hell. But you don't have to go if you believe in Jesus. <laughs> my mother's raised as an Orthodox Jew. My father is not quite as Orthodox. You couldn't get more typical Jewish family than my family. And there I am. And my mother looks at me and says, what are you talking about? I said, Mom, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We missed him. And she says, huh? I may as well have told her I was really not her child. I was a, born on another planet and delivered onto her doorstep, you know, in a basket. And, and then she immediately looks at my father and says, you did this. <laughs> you were not religious enough. And he, she, he looks at my mother and says, you were too religious. You know, and then they're going back and forth and back and forth. Because I was raised in a modern Orthodox synagogue my father wasn't modern orthodox at all, and you know I was all twisted and turned. And so finally, my mother says, so again, you, you, you believe in Jesus? I said, yes. And you're going to go to Bible college? I said, yes. Then what are you going to do for a living? I said, I don't know, probably teach the Bible. And she said, you can make a living at this? <laughs> Not much, Tim, you know, but, you know, we can. <laughs> and so then she said, okay. And I, I'm, I'm sure she, she had no idea what to say. So my mother said, okay, listen, you uh, can't tell your grandparents, you can't tell your sisters, uh, you, can't, uh, you can't read the New Testament, uh, you can't go to church, and no crosses in the house. She didn't see that I had a cross embroidered on my overalls. I had my, my front to her, you know? She just didn't catch it yet. And, uh, but my father was a tailor, so he promised to take it out. So I then agreed to everything my mother said until later on that day, when even as a new believer, I figured it out that I think I had just promised some things to not do that Jesus had already told me to do. And even though I had not yet even gone to a Bill Gothard seminar, if you remember that, I, I knew that I had blown it, and so I apologized, and I said, look, I don't think I can do all that. And uh, my mother said, then you can't stay here. I said, well, can I stay the night? <laughs> you know, in the house, out of the house. And she said, sure, 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 but, uh, but you, 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 if you can't do these things, you can't, you can't stay. I said, okay, I understand it. You know, my poor parents, you know, I had already been a horrible son. Now I believe in Jesus, I'm ready to become a good son, and I'm worse. <laughs> and so, uh, good thing I had a, another person who was from the Gentile wing of the Jesus movement, who lived in Somerville, who was going to take me in. And uh, so I said to my mom, can I just have one shot at telling you why I believe what I believe? She said, you've got one shot and that's it, 
and I don't want to hear it again. And she said, and no New Testament and no crosses. I don't know what she thought I was going to do with the crosses. So, one shot. Well, I was pretty experienced as a three-month-old believer, as you can tell. I was enrolled in Bible college. And, and so I said, about 11 o'clock at night, okay, can we do this? She said, yes. I took out my, my Bible, my Schofield Reference Bible. Uh, there's an old joke about being a, a raised a, a more Orthodox Jew because Jewish people usually read, the, the notes underneath are sometimes viewed as, as inspired as the notes above, the Bible above, uh, particularly a particular commentator. And so I love the Schofield Bible because I had the notes below and I was very comfortable with that. It's just I gave it a little too much authority. But, and so I took out my Schofield Bible and it kind of looked like one of the Jewish Bibles only in English. And so I, I showed it to my mother and I said, let's, let's read here, Isaiah chapter 53. Okay. At this point, I still wasn't sure who Isaiah was, but I said, let's read this. <laughs> and we began re reading Isaiah 53 and about verse six or seven, my mother falls asleep. And so I wake her up and I said, Mom, how could you fall asleep in the middle of this? She said, I told you not to tell me about Jesus. I didn't want to hear about Jesus and I didn't want you to read the New Testament, literally. I said, Mom, that was not the New Testament. That was our Bible. Isaiah is one of ours. And she said, I don't care whose he is. That was it. You had your one shot. That's it. It was at that point that I began to understand the power of Isaiah 53 because my mother knew nothing about Christianity, nothing about the gospel. The only time she ever heard the gospel was when she went shopping at Macy's during Christmas season. And sometimes we used to go to Radio City Music Hall to watch the Christmas show. Why she did that for us, I don't know. But she knew nothing about it. Somehow by osmosis, she had gotten enough of the gospel story to make the the comparison between Isaiah 53 and the life and times of Jesus the Messiah, and she knew it was about Jesus. And let me tell you, a lot of Jewish people who know nothing about the gospel make that connection. I made it. Uh, actually, when I was just about to accept Jesus, long story, but when I was about to accept Jesus, I went to some hippie rabbis, and uh, I, I, we, ha we didn't have these uh, some of these ultra-Hasidic rabbis that went around trying to convert Jewish young people at that time. And so they were, we only had these hippie rabbis. And so I went to these hippie rabbis and I, I said, you gotta, you gotta talk me out of this. I mean, this is gonna kill my family if I believe this, but I've been reading the New Testament, my friends became believers in Jesus, I've tried to talk them out of it, I've been reading our own Bible, and I'm, I think I'm getting convinced that I'm scared to death. I said, explain this chapter to me. Isaiah 53, and he said, you shouldn't be reading that. Well, that's because he didn't understand it either. And so I knew it was powerful in my life, but I really became convinced when I saw it in my mother's life. Well, over the years of serving the Lord, without a doubt, more Jewish people have come to faith reading Isaiah 53 probably than any other passage in the Hebrew Scriptures. And actually, even more importantly, many Jewish people come to faith 
in Jesus the Messiah without reading Isaiah 53, but it's Isaiah 53 that confirms that faith. And the argument for Jewish people is very simple. If I'm going to believe this and put my life on the line and be rejected by my family and my community, then this has really got to be something that's solid, and it's got to be Jewish. Because Jews have, I grew up believing Jews died to stay Jews. And even if I'm not religious, I, I was influenced by all that. Most Jewish people are. And so if the Old Testament doesn't make the case for Jesus being the Messiah, then it gets really difficult for Jewish people to believe it. The good news is, if you read, even read the sermons in Acts chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and and, uh, and, and further, and if you just read the Gospels, you can see that the most convincing argument for Jesus and the disciples, that indeed he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament passages about Messiah. And so he was born in Bethlehem, he was born of a virgin, he suffered and died according to the scriptures. I mean, on and on and on, the life of Jesus is the fulfillment of the expectation of the Messiah in the Old Testament, at least of his first coming. We still have a second act. But I guarantee you that that will fulfill the promises of the Old Testament too. But we'll have to wait and see. Now this morning, what I'd love to do is just to be able to share uh, Isaiah 53 with you, kind of verse, verse by verse. And so we're just going to look at it. Now, uh, I did write a book on Isaiah 53, just a little one. I actually wrote a, a bigger one, um, and, uh, but I, don't, I didn't see it out there today, but you can get it online. But this is the book you want to give to your Jewish friend who shows an interest in the Lord. This is written actually for more secular Jews, not religious Jews. And so I give my testimony, and I, give, uh, I tell Jewish people who Isaiah is, which is an important point of information. And then we go through Isaiah 53 point by point. So that'll be on the back. If you miss something in the sermon, you can get this uh, afterwards. So we're going to take a look at Isaiah chapter 53, and we're going to begin with a description of the servant in Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 3. Now, it's very important to understand that the Old Testament was not written with chapters and verses. Most of you understand that. Now, if you go to a synagogue and watch them read the Torah, the five books of Moses, or take out the half Torah, which is not half a Torah, it's just an additional portion which includes the writings and the prophets, and we open up the scroll, and if someone said, would you go on up there and read from Isaiah chapter 53, you'd be looking all day because the numbers aren't there. You just kind of have to know where it is. And there are little tricks of the trade to know where it is. But there were no chapters and verses in the original. Therefore, as the Bible made its way into other languages uh, other than Hebrew and came off the scrolls, very wise people uh, started adding chapters and verses which are not inerrant, so they're not from Sinai or anywhere else. They are from whoever decided on these chapters and verses. Sometimes they make sense, sometimes they don't. 
Uh, but it's really helpful, particularly if you're like me, you want to read the Bible on the subway. It's very hard to take out a scroll on the subway. I, some of you commute into the city. Can you imagine sitting on the bus and taking out a scroll? No, it's, it's actually much easier to take out your phone now, too. Isn't it? And so Isaiah 53, there's a debate as to where this passage begins. And this passage is unique, but not totally unique, because this is one of what most Old Testament theologians today call the servant songs, the servant songs of Isaiah. And there are really four of them, maybe five, they're still looking at it. Again, this is man's interpretation. But uh, the servant songs are Isaiah 42, 49, 52, 53, and actually chapter 50. Some are trying to extend that to 61 right now. But all of these passages, and they, they sort of, when you read them, they sort of sound like psalms or psalms. And each one of them extols the virtues of the servant of the Lord. But they never tell you who the servant of the Lord really is. Now I'm going to tell you the Jewish argument against Isaiah 53, being the Messiah, so we can get that elephant out of the room immediately. Okay? The Jewish argument against Isaiah 53 is that Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53, is Israel, corporate Israel. And I only have one argument against that, and that is it doesn't fit with the text. And that's a good Jewish argument, because a good Jewish argument, particularly among religious Jews, is if the words of the text say something different than what you've been taught, then go with the words of the text. So the words of the text, the Jewish people have, a, Orthodox Jews have a very high view of scripture. I was raised like that. In fact, even though I look like a, a hippie just like every other hippie, because I was raised modern Orthodox, I knew exactly what I didn't believe <laughs> and felt guilty about it. And so some of my friends were conservative Jews, reformed Jews, secular Jews, but I went to four, five days of Hebrew school, you know, every week from ages eight till 13 and had an Orthodox bar mitzvah. And so I couldn't possibly treat the Bible like any other, any other book. I may not have actively believed it was God's word, but I considered it to be holy. So when I saw Jesus in the Old Testament, it was irresistible. And so Isaiah chapter uh, 53 uh, really doesn't begin in chapter 53. It's one of the servant songs, and the debate is whether it begins in verse 7 of chapter 52 or verse 13 of chapter 52. And uh, all I can tell you is that most people think it begins at verse 13. Newer scholars say it begins at verse 7. Let me read verse 7, and I throw this in at no extra money. It is not even on the PowerPoint. It is brand new information, okay? So here's, here's what Isaiah says in verse 7. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's the Hebrew word, basar, which the Apostle Paul translates as evangelion, which we translate into English as gospel. Gospel. So, how lovely are the feet who bring good news. Paul uses the word gospel. 
So I hope you have lovely feet this morning. You don't have to show me. <laughs> Who announces peace, shalom, brings good news of happiness. The Hebrew word tova, which means either to make happy or to make beautiful. I'll take either one. Who announces salvation, freedom, or deliverance, and says to Zion, your God reigns. So we don't know what the good news is from this passage, but we know that the good news is good. It brings shalom, peace. It makes you happy and beautiful, and it tells you how to be delivered. And it says to Zion, your God reigns. In other words, it says that God has not lost control of the sinful, dark world. But in fact, when you understand the good news, you will recognize that the God of the universe, the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is still in control. That's what you learn when you recognize the good news, which is why it puts a smile on your face. And then what some scholars say is that the rest of chapter 52 to the end of chapter 53 develops the content of the good news. Because you don't know what the content of the good news is. In fact, actually, in verse 10, you can see who the good news is for. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. This is Livingston. You know the word goyim. It's not a compl compliment sometimes. Okay, but in the Bible, it simply just means nations. It can mean pagans, but I know you're not, okay? So, verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm. That holy arm thing is the saving power of God unleashed in human history. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. In other words, whoever the servant of the Lord is, and whatever message the servant of the Lord has, is not restricted to the Jewish people, but it's a message for everybody. You know, that's good news, isn't it? You know, I think that's great. It fits in with the Abrahamic covenant. Through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. With the rest of Isaiah, you will be a witness. Uh, you will be a light to the Gentiles. Scripture is consistent all the way through. The gospel, the good news, is for everybody. And then in chapter 52, beginning at verse 13, we have what I like to call an executive summary of chapter 53. And so let's look at it together. Look at that. Oh, the PowerPoint people are so smart here. Behold, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. You're, you have, many of you, the NIV, but actually New American Standard is the real Bible. I was given one at Northeastern. They said, this is the Bible. And so I, you know, that's it. So, but you try and follow me anyway. That's why it's on the PowerPoint. So, and by the way, I'm just going to preach Jewish style, if that's okay. I do have three points, but I have no poems here. So I'm not, uh, I find as I got older, I just, you know, just threw out everything I learned in, in my theological training and just went, reverted back to Jewish preaching. And Jewish preaching is basically, I'll read it because the words are what matters. God's word matters, not my words, not my interpretation, not my stories, God's word. And so we let God's word drive the sermon. Good idea, right? And so forget about the points. The important thing is God's word. And so when I feel like saying something or commenting, I'll just stop. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just comment and then we'll uh, keep going. And Tim said I have till 2.30, so we're good. <laughs> 
So we begin. Behold, the Hebrew word hine. Can I have your attention? Isaiah walks into the courts of the kings or in the, in the temple area. He was a statesman prophet and uh, probably carried himself with great gravitas. And he said, Behold, Hine, everybody, listen up. I'm going to tell you something that you've never heard before. Behold, here it is, my servant will prosper. Wow, that's an incredible dichotomy because the Hebrew word servant really means slave, and slaves never prosper. So this is an interesting story, catches the ear of everybody listening. Behold, my servant will prosper. NIV has, my servant will act wisely. It's the same Hebrew word translated in different ways because the only way you became a slave in the Old Testament is to lose the farm. If you lost the farm, you had to indenture yourself to another Israelite. If you like that person, after seven years, you put an earring in your ear and continue to serve him throughout your life until the year of Jubilee, which was the 50th year, when the land reverted back to its original owners. So you better hope you live long enough. And so the servant really, I mean, what Israelite servant could get a part-time job at Walmart or Starbucks, you know? And so you had no hope other than the year of Jubilee, really, of getting your land back. And so it's impossible to prosper. Now, what do prosperous Israelite farmers do? They sit at the gate and dispense wisdom and make their kids work. I love that model. <laughs> love that model. We really lost something when we gave up farming. And so basically, the kids do all the work and... You know, dad sits at the gate and says, tell me your problems. You know, wait a minute, I have to get some more coffee. Yeah, go ahead. And so basically, all that Isaiah is saying is my servant will get back everything they've lost and recapture their seat at the gate, therefore act wisely, or in one word, prosper. Okay? Behold, my servant will prosper. Everything the servant lost, the servant will gain back immediately you're struck with two faces to the, of the servant of the Lord. One, humility, poverty, suffering, the other, exaltation. And in Judaism, you know, there's only one concept of the Messiah, and that is an exalted Messiah who comes to reign as king. And that is typical in Jewish tradition. I know it's in the Bible, something other than that, and even in some ancient Jewish traditions, kind of a minority report, you have a suffering Messiah and a reigning Messiah, but most Jews never heard of it. And so the expectation by Jewish people of the Messiah is that he will come, he will reign as king, situate Israel as the head of the nations and not the tail, he will raise the dead, and everything will be cool. Okay, That's the hope of the Jewish people. My wife's life is sort of a, a testimony to it. She was raised in poverty in Argentina. She came to America, and she was still poor uh, because she was a poor immigrant. And she came to Los Angeles. And Jewish, nice Jewish girl from Argentina, her family was originally from Romania and moved to Argentina. And so uh, basically what my wife wanted most in the world when she was a child was a bicycle and a puppy. She had simple needs. They've increased. 
Just <laughs> a bicycle and a puppy. And she would say, Mom, Mom to my mother-in-law, when, when, when will I get my bicycle and puppy? A typical thing. When the Messiah comes, you're going to get the bicycle, <laughs> you're going to get the puppy, you know. And it's so typically Jewish, which is why I say, I did that too. You know, the coming of the Messiah is like the great Hanukkah, you know. You get everything, including that pitcher's glove I wanted. So, so immediately, if you're reading this with your Jewish friend, it answers one of the most basic Jewish objections to Jesus being the Messiah, and that is, is there really a concept of the Messiah coming as a suffering servant? Most Jewish people would say no. Isaiah would say yes. So if you're sitting there reading this through with a Jewish friend, and make sure you let that person read the passage. It's nothing like people reading and saying, what do you think that means? Oh, that's such a great line, isn't it? You know? But it really helps. All right, next passage. It's going to take a long time. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Wow! The last time you read that in the book of Isaiah is in chapter 6, in his calling and commissioning. He was in the temple in a vision, and he saw the Lord high and lifted up and greatly exalted. His train, his robe, filled the temple. You remember that? So the last time that Isaiah used these words, he was describing God himself. Now he's describing a lowly servant. Something's funky here, you know what I mean? It's curious. So my servant will prosper when he shouldn't. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted when he shouldn't be, because that's God's position. Verse 14, just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance, listen to this, was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And that word marred, really could be translated scarred. And so he was scarred, he was marred. He was almost physically deformed through the degree of suffering that he went through. So just as many were astonished at you, my people, because of the suffering of the Jewish people, so the appearance of the servant will be marred and scarred more than any man and is formed more than the sons of men. So in other words, the path from humility to exaltation will be filled with suffering, and at the end of the path, he would be marred and scarred and even physically disfigured. Starting to sound a little bit like some, some, somebody you know. Now, verse 15 is one of those verses which causes many people to just give up on reading the Old Testament and just reading the Psalms and say, how does it speak to me? Which, by the way, not every Psalm applies to you directly. Sometimes it really does apply to Israel. But you get the principles. But this is an interesting passage. He will sprinkle many nations. Isaiah borrows the word sprinkle from Leviticus 1 through 7, where the word almost always refers to the sprinkling of atoning blood on the altar. It doesn't refer to rain. It doesn't refer to water. Everybody knows what that word refers to. It refers to the sprinkling of atoning blood by the priest. Therefore, what in the world is he talking about? Thus, he will sprinkle many nations. What, what does that mean? 
He will sprinkle many nations with atoning blood. Why are the Gentiles? We understand it's a bit of a metaphor, but, but why would the Gentiles be sprinkled with atoning blood? Because of what was already stated in verse uh, 10, and what was already stated in Genesis 12, 3, that the Jewish people were chosen for the benefit and blessing of the nations. Therefore, whoever this servant is, his suffering would bring benefit and blessing for the world and not simply for Israel. That's what it means. And kings, that's Gentile kings, by the way, or else it wouldn't be plural. Jews only had one king. So kings will shut their mouths on account of him for what they had not been told them. They will see what they had not heard. They will understand. Gentile kings would shut their mouths. They wouldn't even know how to respond to their people, their citizens, following a Jewish king, a suffering king, one they couldn't even reach out and touch physically, and yet they would even give their lives for that king. Kings will be astounded, particularly by the message and by the followers. Now, let's continue in verse 1 of 53, because if you don't understand the preamble, you can't understand verse 1. Isaiah then asked the question, who has believed our message? Who believes the message of a servant who prospers, who's high and lifted up and greatly exalted, who's marred and scarred and sprinkles atoning blood on behalf of the Gentiles? Who believes this message? Who would possibly believe it? And I find myself raising my hand. <laughs> Do you? You believe it? I believe it. Who has believed our report, the story? I believe the story. And to whom has the arm, the saving presence of God in human history? Who has the arm, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Want to raise your hand again? We believe it. And then he goes into quite a discussion in verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, a root out of parched ground, no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing charismatic, small c, about this servant of the Lord that would draw us to him. If he was a modern-day preacher, he definitely wouldn't have a t television show. There was nothing about him that was charismatic or even endearing. In fact, there were elements of him because of his suffering that were repulsive. Look at verse 3. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face as if he had leprosy. That would be the only person men would hide their face from in the Old Testament. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. It's not just that they didn't believe in him. They were put off by him. They rejected him. They didn't want to be associated with him because of his suffering. And then in verse 4, it's as if the scales fall off the eyes of the Jewish people who are about to join in a beautiful chorus singing this wonderful song in verse 4. One day, I believe, the Jewish people as a nation, according to Romans 11:25, 25, where Paul says, in that day all Israel will be saved, 
will be singing this song. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Wow, we blew it. We missed it. He didn't die for his own sin. He died for our sins. Our sorrows he carried. We thought he was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We were wrong. He was pierced through for our transgressions. The Hebrew word which means uh, uh, rebellion. He was crushed. For our iniquities, the Hebrew word avon, which means crooked, bent. If you make the law, the law a straight line, we're all crooked. The chastening for our well-being, the Hebrew word shalom is well-being, fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray, the heart of sin doing your own will, going your own way. Each of us has turned to his own way, but... The Lord has caused the iniquity, the crookedness of us all to fall on him. In other words, everything that we deserve because we are the sinners, he received. And everything that he deserved because he was perfect, we received. And you could say, well, that's unfair. But the Bible doesn't say it's unfair. The Bible calls it grace grace, unmerited favor. Well, we have a few more minutes and a few more verses, so let's just keep going. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth like a lamb, like the Passover lamb whose blood was shed and put on the lentil and the doorposts of the Jewish home so that the angel of death would pass over the firstborn males. By oppression and judgment, uh, he was oppressed uh, and afflicted like a lamb led to a slaughter, like a sheep silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. This is where all the imagery of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world comes from. He was oppressed and he was, I'm sorry, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered, listen carefully, that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression or rebellion of my people to whom the stroke, the judgment, was due. Let me tell you why verse 8 is so important. Verse 8 is important because if you take it literally, then you understand that there's no way in heaven and earth that the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53 could be corporate Israel. Absolutely no way. I've tested this. Uh, off of uh, many different rabbis. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. And usually the way I argue this with, with a knowledgeable Jewish person is I will simply say, let's read verse 8. We read verse 8, it says the same thing in the Hebrew as it says in the English. And then I just ask a simple question. What nationality was Isaiah? Three guesses. Norwegian. Italian or Jewish? Correct. <laughs> How in the world can Israel be cut off for the sins of Israel? Does that make sense? It makes no sense. The servant is not the nation. He's an individual. He's a Jewish person. And he dies for the sins of the Jewish people and the world. 
His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet with a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. In 1 Peter, uh, the apostle picks up on the attitude and the way Jesus suffered as an example for all of us. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. That doesn't mean happy. It was, it was his will to crush him. Putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, that was the asham that was totally consumed on the altar. Now look at the next passage because it's really, really critical. He will see his offspring or seed. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. He will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. I have come all the way to New Jersey from the Holy Land, Brooklyn, this morning <laughs> because I could find nobody to answer this question. Okay? From the text, and if you read it in Hebrew, you would see almost every Hebrew word to describe death is used of the servant of the Lord. So this morning, I know that you're led by a Northeastern grad, which means you're all incredibly, thoroughly, biblically literate. So now, here's my help, okay? Did the servant of the Lord die? It's, that's a yes or no question. Okay. Is the servant of the Lord still alive? Are you confused? Okay. So he died. For real. He died. But he lives. How's that possible? Because he rose from the dead. He rose from the dead. And because he rose from the dead, we will rise from the dead. And one day we will join him around his throne as his co-regents forever and ever. Amen. What a glorious future we have because this humble servant of the Lord suffered for us. I think, uh, if we can go to the last slide, I think one of my favorite passages in the Bible is Paul's commentary on Isaiah 53. <laughs> That's the way I look at it. I'll ask Paul when I see him. So Paul says we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of the Messiah, be reconciled to God. Because he died and made peace with God for us, and we have experienced that peace, we are now motivated to fulfill the Great Commission to invite others to experience that peace. And then Paul continues, and this is the Isaiah 53 part. He made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. To be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And if you were ever wondering what the good news really was, it's this. The good news, my dear brothers and sisters, it's not a philosophy or a theological point of view. It's, it's not a new religion. The good news is a person. And that's Jesus. And I'm sure everybody here 
has accepted Jesus as their personal Savior. He did it for all of us, but we need to embrace it personally. But in the event that you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord, Savior, your Moshiach, your Messiah and King, God offers you the good news and all he waits for is for you to say yes. So if you've never accepted Jesus, wow, what a great time to do it. The gospel's so clear. He died and rose for you. Thank you.